This is the first episode of Machines and Masterpieces, a podcast that plans to explore intersections of culture, technology, and economics. I am Christoph Spaniers, and I'm an Associate Professor of Finance at HEC Paris. My guest today is Amy Whitaker, who is an Assistant Professor in Visual Arts Administration at NYU. Amy has been teaching business to artists and art to business students for many years. She just published a book called Economics of Visual Art, and she's a very appropriate guest for this first episode because she has thought a lot about how technology, and in particular the blockchain, can revolutionize the art markets. Amy, welcome to the show and thanks for being here. I wanted to talk to you about two potential applications of the blockchain technology in the art market. The first obvious application of the blockchain is to use it for the registration of ownership of artworks. So I was wondering if you could tell me what is the current state of affairs in this respect and where do you see this industry going? Thanks so much, Christophe. It's great to be here. So when we talk about the registration of artworks, I want to say one thing just as an introduction, which is that blockchain is strongly associated with cryptocurrencies, but the technology itself is obsessed with the same registrarial properties of provenance that the art market is. So blockchain is about a digital registry of information. What's happening right now is that some of the early companies in the blockchain space set up to register physical artworks or digital artworks separately. We've seen companies like Artery, for example, that registered the Barney Ebsworth sale at Christie's, a roughly $317 million sale in 2018, tagging individual high-level physical works of art like paintings by Edward Hopper or David Hockney. And then we've also seen early companies like Monograph that tried to register digital native works um, kind of ebb and flow as some of that was really exciting to people a few years ago, dropped off and then came back with this recent NFT craze. So I think it's interesting that that you have these different ventures that try to track ownership and transactions. But questions we may have is, can this really be left to for-profit companies, right? So for real estate, for housing, registering ownership and transactions is typically considered the task of the government and there's a licensed notaries and so on. Maybe also because we want to limit the possibility of fraud. So is this something we want to leave for for-profit industry? And also related to that, I, I guess we wouldn't want there to be too many different private blockchains all tracking art ownership and provenance, right? That wouldn't be very efficient. So what's your view on that? No, I think it's a really important question. I've been thinking about it a lot because on the one hand, it would make sense for there to be a government registry of this information. But on the other hand, the whole purpose of blockchain is to find a way to trust a record without trusting a central administrator. And it's harder, it's hard to imagine a central administrator more centralized than a nation state. So I think the other question is this question of interoperability. What happens if we have a lot of private blockchains? And I think definitely, ideally, they would overlap and be able to talk to each other. For me, the analog to more traditional asset classes is less physical property and more hedge funds and alternative assets because the same sorts of privacy frameworks, the same sort of market opacity is so, as you know, present in the arts. Yeah, so that's interesting. So one thing I, I, I always wonder about when, when people talk about registering ownership of artworks or other physical assets on the blockchain is how do you link the blockchain or the records on the blockchain to the physical artwork, right? It's, it's one thing to say that I or for the blockchain to record that I own a certain artwork. 
But when you have a physical artwork, how do you know that this artwork is actually artwork that I own, right? So how do we link the blockchain to the physical assets? I'm actually sort of obsessed with this question, and I want to run an idea by you and see if you agree or disagree. So definitely, there is a huge, quote unquote, blockchain air gap between the object and its blockchain record. The same thing is actually true for digital objects, too where maybe there's a stable URL that the work is associated with, but this is a huge, huge question. In the case of physical artwork, to answer your question more directly, there are a number of different methods that people use. So they might use a tag that goes on the artwork or a DNA spray on the artwork, or they might take some intrinsic property of the work. For example, when curators and conservators travel with artworks as couriers to take them to exhibitions, they have intricate maps of all the cracks in the surface of the artwork so that they can check any damage in transit. And you can use high-resolution photographs of small sections. What I wanted to ask you about that I'm sort of obsessed with is the game theory aspect of it or the panopticon aspect of it, where I think in an ideal world, you have one method that's visible and announced like a sign in someone's garden that says this house has a burglary alarm system, but then you have a second method that is invisible and you can never know which method it is, if it's a photograph or if it's DNA spray, so that there's this invisible deterrent as well. But some of these systems, there's a company called Start Bond, for example, that has tags that go on artworks, but they have two different kinds of tags. They have one for collectors and one for artists. And I think it's quite interesting in a general finance context that the artist tag is the more reliable audit function, if you will, because artists are the people making the work. So it's much easier to track from the studio. Um, so I think there, there's kind of two pieces. One, the, the game theory strategy of multiple methods and two, the sort of reorientation of art markets toward artists because actually they can vouch for the work better than anyone. I also think that the methods may be dependent on the type of artwork, right? So if you think about, I've heard about varnish crackings and things like that, but that will only work for a specific type of artwork. I think also in the wine market, people struggle with the same problems, right? So it's it's one thing to record the wine ownership in the blockchain, but then how do we know which wine the record is relating to? And I think there, they're working a lot with tags and sort of microchips and other kinds of innovations that we may talk about later in this podcast. But so I, I guess it's almost unavoidable that uh, multiple methods will be will be used going forward. I also think that for, for digital art or for NFTs, right? Um, it's interesting that in a way that this market struggles sometimes with the same problems, right? So it's even though you would think that this is purely a problem of physical assets, this is also a problem of digital assets, right? You mentioned the... URL, but then the URL or the object on the URL can change over time, right? So, and, and I guess there's there's different ways in which people try to get around this problem using the IPFS hashes or other systems, but it, it's still not clear whether there's a fail-proof um, solution to this problem. Yeah, and I love that you relate it to the wine market. I was thinking about that in terms of the Easter eggs that are sometimes in the actual drawn labels that only people who work in the wine industry can recognize theoretically. And I think it's interesting if artists started to embed things in their work and they controlled the privacy of the information of who they told it to, maybe that would be a little bit interesting. But I, I completely agree. I think there's something really paradoxical or counterintuitive that technologies like blockchain that are technically immutable 
actually have this slightly organic structure of needing maintenance. You know, they need some upkeep to continue to function. And I can only name off the top of my head one artwork that actually lives on the blockchain, which you probably know it's the project Autoglyphs that's by Larva Labs, the same creators of the CryptoPunks. And they created it as inspired by a Solowit wall drawing. So the artwork is a set of instructions that makes the drawing of the artwork every time. I mean, that's quite conceptually interesting, but a little bit harder if you have a cat and a Pop-Tart and a rainbow and some other really complicated graphic elements in your NFT. But yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. And I would be curious if you're researching that kind of stuff with your, your work on wine and so as well as art markets. Not yet, but that's definitely something I can do or I want to do in the future. <laughs> um, so let me change gears a bit. So because we were talking about artists and the control of artists on over their work, right? So and I think another potentially useful application of the blockchain is that it may allow for or at least simplify the contracting around fractional ownership of artworks, right? And and you actually you have argued in the past that it would make sense that artists retain some percentage of ownership or equity in their own work. So can you explain why? And, and, and can you maybe give an example of how this would work in practice? So we have this framework, right, of Dwada Suite or resale royalties, this regulatory framework of giving artists a percentage of the proceeds when their work resells. I think I started researching fractional equity originally because the U.S. legal context is so broken. The regulation doesn't exist at a federal level, and the proposed regulation is pretty chaotic in its structure, very bureaucratic in its kind of proposal for oversight. And I think it's fair to say that a lot of people in the industry don't like resale royalties. They are bureaucratic to manage. You know, they offend any economist's sensitivity to price elasticity of demand and so on and so forth. But there's a kind of underlying fundamental problem, which is that it's extremely hard to know the value of a work of art and also extremely hard to discover the price of a work of art. And it's hard at a point in time because there are many forms of value. And it's hard over time because work is really new and then it takes a long time for people to understand how it might function in markets. I have described this before in terms of the philosopher Heidegger's definition of a work of art, that a work of art is something new in the world that changes the world to allow itself to exist meaning that you are making a work of art in the point A world, investing resources, but you don't know the value of what you make until the point B world that the work itself creates. As a finance professor, I would say that uh, what you're saying <laughs> is that the market is not efficient. Sh shouldn't the price of the market value of an artwork always reflect the future <laughs> enjoyment um, discounted back to today? <laughs> what is the language of finance I would use in response to that? I think it's like an information asymmetry where we're all on the wrong side of it and because none of us have a, a crystal ball or it's a bounded rationality problem. But yes, I, I take your point that markets um, should be efficient. And just for the record, I believe in markets. The way that Churchill believed in democracy is the worst form except the others. I love markets and what they're able to do. And so I think fractional equity is actually a market tool. It's just a market tool that takes you from a consumption world where you're looking at price equaling value and the logic of economics in terms of the scarcity of resources. And you're taking that into a finance world where you're looking at risk and return, and you're acknowledging that the artist is an investor in many senses, 
and is investing resources, but then not owning any of the upside that the artist creates. The paper that was published on this in Management Science, and as you know, a collaboration with our common colleague, Roman Kreisel from the University of Luxembourg, and your co-author as well, Christophe, we took data from archives on primary market sales by artists from the 1950s and 1960s in New York City, really because of data availability. As you know, it's very hard to get primary market records. And then compared those to the later auction records and asked how would the artists have performed if they had retained 10% ownership in the work. So we started with a couple of famous artists, which sounds like cherry picking, um, Robert Rauschenberg and Jasper Johns. And it was genuinely embarrassing and surprising. You're like, oh no, they've outperformed markets by up to a thousand times or a 20 to 40% return every year over a span of multiple decades. But then we modeled it based on all of the work sold by galleries and still found this outperformance. So for me, the question isn't, should all artists be made to retain equity in their work? The question is, should artists be invited to have autonomy as market participants in their work and to forgo some of the proceeds in the primary market to get paid in the secondary market? What you're saying is very interesting and a couple of follow-up questions, but my first reaction to this would be, well, it's always easy for artists to take equity in their own work because they can just keep some of their own work, right? So they can create an initial painting, put it under their bed, keep it for 20 years, and in a way that that would be their equity in their own work, right? So that, and then my, my second question, which is a bit related maybe is, okay, if you want to put this or formalize this and, and, and put this in a ledger, why do we need a blockchain for this, right? So what, what technological feature of the blockchain are really key to implement such a system in which artists remain fractional owners of their own output. So you asked me to give you an example, and I don't want to forget to do that. So I will give you a a Rauschenberg example in just a second. But on the first question of keeping the artwork under your bed, I think it's really physically hard, expensive, and psychologically hard to retain work in that way. It's baggage in the, you know, sort of new agey psychological sense, but it's actually really hard to do. And I look at something like the Artist Pension Trust, where an organization had artists submit physical artworks as a form of diversified retirement investment for all of them. And it becomes a huge headache because they have to pay to store them. So you're absolutely right. Artists have done that historically. They still do it. You can see foundations like the Joan Mitchell Foundation, where they're able to sell work in a controlled way to support the foundation's activities because the artists save work in that way. And also, as you know, uh, artists trade work a lot or buy work from each other, and they're also able to sell some of that work and usually sell it first. So you can keep work physically, absolutely. But isn't it also kind of interesting to be able as an artist to have diversified exposure to the upside of your own work and also other people's work? So to start to build kind of portfolios where artists are pooling risk, and that can be done if there's a way of investing in the work that is separate from the physical work. And I I think that what's interesting about blockchain for that is that it, it allows you to keep a record that's reasonably transparent. I'm not trying to sound like an insufferable blockchain enthusiast. A lot of the details are being worked out still. And a lot of the big questions are being worked out still. But the idea of blockchain is a governance idea of trusting the system of the record. And one of the things that's interesting, just anecdotally, I've talked to a number of people in auction houses who are like totally loathe resale royalties, 
who are quite happy to pay percentages back to artists on NFTs. And I think it's because the technology makes the system so much more automated and makes it feel more collaborative in the creation of this upside or value. So just to end on an uncharacteristically concrete note for me, um, Rauschenberg, the famous story in the US is that Rauschenberg in 1958 made a, a work called Thaw. Robert and Ethel Skull bought it around that time, maybe a year later for $900 from the Leo Castelli Gallery. So. Rauschenberg gets 50% of that, takes home $450. Fast forward from 1958, 59 to 1973, the Skulls, who are getting acrimoniously divorced, sell major works of art at an auction at Sotheby Park Burnett, and that piece by Rauschenberg sells for $85,000. Between 1959 and 1973 is when Rauschenberg did a lot of work that affected the market for his art. In 1964, he represented the United States at the Venice Biennale and won the top prize. And if you look back to 1958-59, the first show that Leo Castelli hosted at the gallery, one work sold and only because Castelli bought it himself. So you could say the Skulls are these early venture capitalist type risk takers where they should be able to get a home run on that purchase. But it just doesn't seem that hard for Rauschenberg to have foregone part of the $450, right? So for him to own 10% of the work by buying that share himself, taking home $360 instead of $450, and then to get $8,500 when the work sells. I mean, it's more complicated than that, obviously, but I, I think it's an interesting market idea applied to artists. So I like the venture capital analogy, right? So I can see the value of diversified portfolio of contemporary artwork shares. Like if you're a collector or if you're a gallery, it's not clear to me whether this would be optimal from the point of the individual artist in terms of risk-taking exante. Rauschenberg didn't know, I guess, that he would be so successful. If I can bring in an analogy from economics, most econo economists would agree that it would make sense for CEOs to divest their stocks or their stock options as soon as they can. Or I typically give the advice to my MBA students not to hold too much equity in the company where they work because they're already very much exposed to the success of the company, right? So do you think that owning equity in your own output as an artist makes sense from an ex-ante risk-return perspective? I think that what you're saying to your students is an interesting starting point to answering it because I guess I agree with you in some ways. In other ways, I feel like your salary is renting your time to a company. And so it's structured much more in a debt or annuity type of logic, whereas equity is an exposure to upside. So it's a different type of investment in the company. And I guess you can't technically like go short the company's stock while getting the stock options of the place where you work. So there's some limitations, but what, what interests me the most, um, because I really do take your point, Yes, artists are already massively concentrated in their own output. Yeah, they're very much exposed to their own career, right? I mean, maybe, although I guess what, what maybe is interesting in this respect or, or what's related to this is that, of course, artists could maybe what you're, you have in mind is a system in which artists could also pool their shares or exchange shares or where there's a resale market for this. Exactly. And this is where I think some of the NFT experiments are instructive because we're watching NFT sales where it's like watching a rocket launch where you're, you're like, oh, that you know, people work sold for almost $70 million. But closer to the ground, I think there's some really, really interesting structural work. I can give you two examples. One is a company called Feral File, which has 
curated shows. So say there are 10 artists in the show. Each artist does receive a resale royalty if their work resells. They just receive a flat 10%. And it, there's no complicated hedge fund, high watermark type of accounting at all. So we could you know, investigate that separately. But what also happens is that of the addition of 75, the first 10 are distributed across the artists and the curator of the show. So if you are and I are in the show together and your work takes off and mine doesn't, I own one of your works. So if I wanted to, I could sell it. And that's actually happened in the case of the first For All File show. There, there are a couple of artists whose work has traded from $75 to tens of thousands of dollars and is currently listed for hundreds of thousands of dollars. And you see that in some other shows too. Um, Kalani Nicole curated a show at Transfer Gallery where each artist got 70% of the sales price of their work and then 30% was pooled across all the artists. So to me, it's analogous to either a tip pool. And I know I'm making a US centric reference, but the way that servers in a restaurant pool their tips, not suggesting that's an ideal labor structure, pool their tips across everyone, including people who are working in the kitchen or the hostess, or if you're in the finals of a poker tournament, as, as we all are, if the prize is a million dollars and there are four people, you might divide it up. So the winner takes home $700,000 and each other person takes home $100,000. So I think you actually can create those structures. The reason we don't have them around traditional artworks is the divisible, divisibility problem and the transaction cost management problem. So smart contracts, you know, they definitely demand some skepticism in their structure because they're so automated and not perfect. But I also think that if you can create systems where that risk kind of flows through and doesn't require a lot of oversight, that's pretty interesting from a Vanguard investing kind of diversified portfolio standpoint. Okay, so that's interesting. One thing that I, I always wonder about when, when people talk about fractional equity and taking shares in artworks is like, how does this potentially diminish the ownership rights of future buyers, right? So would these buyers still have the right to destroy the painting? I'm not sure that anybody wants to do that. Or, or do you think that the... <laughs> But, but, but there's this question about what does it mean to be an owner of a painting, right? Or, or do you think that the shares would keep their value even if the underlying asset is destroyed, which is an argument that's sometimes made in the NFT market, but could, could buyers sell or otherwise transfer the artwork to whoever they want, right? So, so how, do you, how do you see the relation between the artist who has retained some, some equity in the artwork and then the future buyers of these artworks? Completely. I mean, it's a... It's a reminder of these sort of stranger parts of the art market where people buy work and keep it in a free port and never live with it or interact with it as a work of art. It's like the artist keeping the work under their bed as this kind of future investment. And it's also like the Damien Hurst NFT where you buy a work and then you have to decide whether to destroy the work and keep the NFT or vice versa. And, and it is a really interesting speculative question, like not just you owning the work and destroying it, that me being the artist and disavowing it while you own it, while someone else is invested in it, or something I think about a lot. And Roman and I have been um, looking at a little in relation to one of our projects, asset truncation of museum donation. So again, I know I'm making a US-centric reference, but if you donate a work to a museum as an artist, you can only claim cost of materials, not even labor. If you donate it as a collector, you get the credit at your effective tax rate, right? So I donate $100 work and I have a 28% tax rate. I get $28 off my taxes. So the asset is truncated from 100 to 28. But for the artist, it's a better outcome than if the artist donated the work to a museum. So you have some very, very complicated, very weird 
like, you know, if we think the kinked demand curve from the oligopoly chart is a little bit invented or counterintuitive, like that logic is kind of how a lot of these markets would go. So for me, I think that it comes down to having a reasonable contract with a reasonable duty of care and requirement of appraisal and insurance. And I I know that's a little messier than just buying work clean and selling it clean. And I'd be more than willing to say that the logistics are not sorted out, but it seems like there's a way that that could be workable. And so do you you see big galleries or or famous artists or big players in the market engaging in setting up such a system soon? Or do you think it's going to remain uh, more of a theoretical possibility offered by the blockchain that is never really implemented? Yeah, so I think we're we're talking about kind of how change happens. And I think one way the change could happen is if the NFT market becomes a disruptive technology that pulls the taste-making structures of the high end of the auction business toward things that you or I might not yet define as fine art. The other thing that I think could happen, the other people I think have the power to change the system are really high-level individual artists who are represented by major galleries. I don't think that a gallery would implement such a system unless they were trying to capture a market of new buyers, the kind of 90% of people who bid on the Beeple or 80% of people who bid on NFTs with major auction houses who are new to the houses. So that might be possible if the gallery were seeking new markets. But within the art market, I think it would have to be like the Jasper Johns of the world going in and saying, hey, this is important to me, in which case the gallery would do it and convince their collectors of it because the artist has market power. I think that's fascinating. Uh, We'll have to see what the future holds in that respect. Before we, we, we close, I just had one final question for you, which is, do you think there's a case to be made that the blockchain is itself a work of art, right? Or that the earliest blockchains were themselves works of art? It's actually something that, that people have asked me as well. And I, I never really know what to respond. But but there's definitely this, this sense in which some people believe that that the blockchain is a con- can be considered as a conceptual work of art. So what's your view on that? I do think it's a work of art in the Heidegger sense. I think that we're constantly reinventing the world. And that in its theoretical form, and I don't mean to sound naive to mention theory because I do understand practice is quite a challenge, but in its theoretical form, blockchain is as fundamental a structure as something like democracy or a computer chip. When I talk about it as an art project, I always tell the story of Stuart Haber and Scott Sternetta. They are um, a cryptographer and a physicist, respectively, who worked at Belcor, the research lab of the telephone companies in New Jersey in the late 1980s. And they developed the first proto-blockchain. Their work constitutes three out of eight total footnotes in the Satoshi Nakamoto Bitcoin white paper. And they started with this question that I think is actually incredibly similar to the arts. Everyone's getting a computer. It's so easy to manipulate a digital file. How will we know it was true about the past? And how will we know that without trusting a central administrator? And that's how they came up with the logic of decentralization and the interconnected records. Satoshi level jumped it by creating the currency as a motivation for all the people who are verifying the, the multiple copies of the blockchain ledger. And that has its own ramifications environmentally, especially. But the 
the underlying question came about in that way where someone just said, I'm trying to figure this thing out and I'm just going to try to figure it out from scratch and then kind of keep going. And to me, that's the essence of an art studio kind of process. I want to say that Haber and Sternetta like, are not heavily invested in early cryptocurrency. Um, they tried to start a company well, well ahead of their time. And then Haber went on to do research. Sternetta taught high school math for a long time. And now they're both working in blockchain again. But I mean, I do think that there are those stories. I don't think it's only an art project. And I think maybe in that way, it's closer to all of what the past couple of years have asked us to do, which is to kind of figure out how to be rational and imaginative at the same time to engage our analytic brains and also our, you know, skeptical future respecting selves. But yeah, I do, I do think it's an art project and one of the key breakthroughs in the story came when Sternetta was waiting with his family by the ice cream cakes at the Friendly's restaurant in Morristown, New Jersey. So I, I think it has it has the the sort of quirky everydayness of how um, the extraordinariness of some art projects comes into being. But I'll be curious. I'm, I'd like That's to. It's a great you. story, Amy. Thanks for sharing <laughs> that. And I think this is a very appropriate uh, end for this uh, first episode. So thanks for uh, thanks for sharing your insights. Thanks for having me. It's great to discuss this um, with you. And now I'll be excited to see you get asked the art project question another time.